exposit scripture all the way through. We, we believe that all of the word of God is authoritative, that all of the word of God is useful for, te- for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness. We believe that all scripture is God's word, which is good for us. <laughs> and so we're going to be looking at a, a section today that might not feel like the, the meatiest on the front end. It doesn't have all those scripture memory verses and everything, but I, I promise you it is, it is good. It is meaningful. It is life-giving. And so as we do so, I don't know. I know that Pastor Jacob and Pastor David have been out here not too long ago, and I don't know if they uh, are as unusual as I am in terms of practicing this, but one of the things that we do at Redeemer, and I want to invite you to participate in if you were at all willing, is when we read the word of God, we, we stand. We stand because it is God's word. It is his authority. It is his power. And we want to acknowledge with our bodies, with our presence, that God's word is, is the authority that is speaking over us. And so I would like to invite you to stand as I read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 today. Beginning verse one, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me so that we could go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word given to us by the power of your spirit. We pray that the very same Holy Spirit which inspired these words would soften our hearts and open our minds to receive the truth your word has for us today. Help us, Lord, to hear with eyes unclouded with the pride of self-righteousness and lead us in humble, sacrificial love to worship and delight in you today. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now may be seated. Thank you for, for indulging me. Um, I, uh, interesting fact on the front end, I'm a bit of a recovering true crime junkie. I, I know that there, there, there is some moral question in a lot of that, and sanctification is, is very much in work, in work in my flesh right now as I see aspects of things I once loved dying, but there, there are still stories that stick with me from time to time. And one, one very interesting one, not a, not, a, not a particularly scary one, but a pretty famous one, on November 24th, 1971, Northwest Orient Flight 305 from Portland to Seattle, which was supposed to be an ordinary transit flight, was flying with everything going 
as planned. It, it was a bit rainy, which you know is a massive abnormality for Portland and Seattle. Uh, and everything was normal until a man who identified himself only as D.B. Cooper handed a note to a stewardess. This note contained a simple request. It was that he had a bomb on the, pl on the flight and was going to blow up the plane if he was not given $200,000 for parachutes and allowed to take off from the next landing site to, with the money and with the parachutes. The FBI and a few authorities, uh, despite their best efforts, could not figure out who this man was, could not figure out how to possibly stop him from getting what he wanted without him triggering the bomb. They didn't know how he had it. They didn't know where he had it. And so they had to capitulate to his requests. Um, the Cooper hijacked the plane and he got what he wanted. They landed the plane. He received his money, his parachutes. All of the passengers got off. The plane took off, flew over the northwestern woods, and he jumped out with the money, never to be seen again, supposedly. There, there's, there's as many conspiracy theories about him as there are Jack the Ripper and the return of Jesus Christ. And we, we certainly don't know who this man was. But what we do know is that his hijacking of this plane was unique to a degree that it has enraptured people's imaginations for decades. One man, seemingly average in every possible way, Fought the law, fought the government, fought gravity, fought against the sky itself, and won. He hijacked the system and got everything he wanted. He injected himself into a narrative of, of many other people's lives, claimed what he wanted, put his own rules, put his own stipulations down, and left without any consequences. And stories like this, they're sticky to us for a lot of reasons. And that, those reasons actually seem to be the very things that Paul was concerned about, both Galatia and the Christians throughout all time and history struggling with. You see, Paul told us last week, if you recall from the text, about his conversion, that he, he had this mission, he had this call by God to go to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. He, he, he's reiterating that fact today. Uh, so that it's one of the main themes of Galatians. It's very important. We see that he believed this is what God had chosen for him specifically to do. And he was on it. But he shares another story today of how this idea became challenged, how it became confronted, how, how a few individuals sought to hijack his calling, sought to inject themselves into his missions, into, in doing so, warp what was an otherwise beautiful, noble calling from God into, into something ugly. We see in the first three verses, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Um, these narrative components of, of Paul can sometimes be hard to, to grasp uh, because they... He's telling a story, and in doing so, assuming that we kind of understand what he is addressing. 
And in this particular case, he, he is addressing multiple questions. He is addressing some questions that were levied at him, and he is doing so in light of what we covered last week, namely his calling to the Gentiles. Uh, he, he takes us in this portion of the story to a period of time when he and Barnabas, so this seemingly was earlier in his ministry, journeyed to the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you recall, Jerusalem was the site in which Pentecost occurred, Acts chapter 2. The very first church plant occurred. The spirit descended. The gospel was proclaimed. Believers were converted. Peter preached the, the beautiful sermon in, in Acts chapter 2 in the Church of Jesus Christ began that day. This is the church that Gentile Paul is visiting. And what should have been an encouraging journey for him, though he was a Christian at this point, turned into a good old-fashioned argument. An argument which played out in a couple stages. One, we're only going to look at one of the stages this week. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the other one next week. But... We see in verse four, because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Slavery being a recurring theme throughout this book. Slavery in this case being bondage to rules, bondage to those things which are put upon us, such as the law, such as circumcision, such as, such as the, the means of, of Israelized identity. He has in mind these things here. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Paul tells us in this text a very interesting claim, a claim that we might not typically hear very often, that the truth of the gospel is threatened. The questions, the things that are being brought to him by the, these false brothers, as he calls them, threatens the truthfulness of the gospel. These false brothers seem to have in mind a desire to control the narrative, a desire to control the story of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have in mind that there's something missing, something that they need to bring. They need in some way or another to hijack the proclamation of the message of the gospel and to inject into it their own standards, their own rules. And we see this here when Paul and Titus strolled into town and a few dudes brought to them a simple question that Paul seems to be answering here and for the rest of the book. What if, these gentlemen ask, what if the gospel were only supposed to be for a certain group of people? What if the gospel were only for a special group. Maybe, maybe hypothetically, the gospel were only for the Jews. It's a fair question, that certainly to ask. We, we saw the gospel go to the Jews at Pentecost. They were there for Passover. That was the Jews. That's why a few chapters later, when, when the Samaritans had not been baptized yet in the spirit, they had to go and preach the gospel to them because they weren't there. They weren't there for Passover. So the gospel began to the Jews. That, that, that it, so it's a fair point they bring. But don't be fooled. Their question is a, 
It's a bomb. (laughs) It's something that when followed through can completely blow up the witness of the church, can completely devastate the, the truthfulness of the gospel. What if the gospel were isolated to one group of people? What if it were only for the Jews? What if it only were for a select group of special people? What if it were only for people who looked like us or believed what we believed, liked what we liked? Do you hear what I'm saying here? This is a very slippery slope. The problem is, as Paul addresses here and continues to address and redress for the rest of the book, if the gospel were only for the Jews, let's say hypothetically speaking to y'all here, nobody in this room would have any hope, (laughs) myself included. If the gospel were only for people who looked like Paul or looked like the Judaizers, as uh, the, the people who were confronting him here, then no white, black, or Hispanic, East Asian, or South Asian person would have any chance because he was either of North African or Middle Eastern descent. That's a lot of people that the gospel does not go to. That's a problem. That's a big Big problem. If the gospel were only for a certain people in a certain time, in a certain place, then the gospel would not be good news. It it would be a story of ethnic purity. And that is not what it is. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe, first to the Jew and then to everyone else. (laughs) That is the good news. Because the gospel is good news for all nations, it's good news for you too. It's good news for me. It's good news for all of the nations of the earth. It's good news for the people we like and the people we don't like. (laughs) It's good news for the ISIS, the Taliban, the the other political party that you don't like. It's good news for them. It's good news for your neighbor. It's good news for your coworker, your family member, your enemies. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of salvation to all who believe. That is what Paul is willing to throw hands for with these false brothers. And that's precisely the thing that Paul knows that we are tempted to forget or to inject our own measures in. But there seems to be a second question implicit to Paul's response. A question that might sound pretty familiar from the first couple sermons you've probably heard over Galatians. It's one of the major themes of the book of Galatians, and he seems to be revisiting it here. What if, we may ask as the the brothers did, what if the gospel is only real in our life if we do something to make it real? What if the gospel is only the gospel if we are also circumcised? They ask to a few Gentiles that unfortunately also had to answer that question. What if the gospel is only the gospel if we keep the law and make sacrifices at the temple? What if the gospel is only the gospel if we're baptized a certain way? If we worship a certain way? If we believe an exact set of doctrines specifically, a certain set of political beliefs or live a certain lifestyle? What if the gospel is exclusionary? What if there is a difference between Jesus being your savior and your Lord? Do you you see how all of these things 
are, are, are just subtly suggesting that something's missing, that Jesus isn't enough, that we just need a little bit more put back in there. This is not good news. <laughs> because here's the deal. If you needed to keep the, Le- the Levitical law to be saved, if you needed to be circumcised, if you needed to go make a sacrifice at the temple and own land in Israel and sit under the teaching of the Torah, I've got bad news <laughs> for everyone here. <laughs> I-, I don't think any of us are going to be hauling any sheep to the Temple Mount anytime soon. I don't know that we actually have a means of ever keeping the law fully, completely, perfectly. And even if we did, we wouldn't. (laughs) Because none of us have kept the law. None of us have been perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. That's why the the Sermon on the Mount is a bit excoriating to us if if we read it directly. None of us have obeyed every command and statute. None of us have been pure, perfect, holy, and righteous. None of us have lived exactly as Christ intended us to. We have all broken God's law. Every one of us. But maybe, maybe considering that God's grace is sufficient and we overlook that, but maybe we just add on top of grace. Maybe that's where we need to add something back in. We might suggest nowadays, as some of the teachers might have, maybe if we're baptized right, then we're all good, right? I'm sure that 2,000 years of church history has come to a perfect consensus on this, and there's no disagreements between us and other churches in town, right? Uh, No, because at the end of the day, if we add anything, anything at all to the gospel, we subtract the good news part. If we make a good plan or good advice and we add it on to the good news, the good news ceases to be good news. Our rules of self-righteousness, our rules to make ourselves good may seem ordinary, but they are bombs that blow up the truth of of our gospel message. If we hijack this message, if we add back to it that it's the gospel, the, the grace of Jesus Christ freely offered, plus a little bit of works, plus enough faith, plus enough repentance, plus the right kind of baptism, plus the right doctrines, what we do is we make the gospel into a performance again. We make it into something that we cannot earn and we make the good news of the gospel yet another duet that we need to be performing where, where God plays one half and we, we pick up the rest and run with it. If we had to be enough to please God, then there is no good news. If we had to be faithful enough, if we had to repent enough, if we had to try hard enough, then there is no good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ is our full hope, our full satisfaction, that Christ was righteous enough to satisfy the law that the Spirit's power applies Christ's righteousness to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Even faulty, fleeting, ineffective faith, the Spirit applies Christ's righteousness to us and the will of the Father to save us is accomplished. That's the good news of the gospel. 
So why, we, we, we need to ask now, do we have such a hard time? Why do we have such a tendency to want to do what the false brothers did and to just, just add a little something back? Just tuck a little something in the pocket there of the gospel. Why do we have the tendency that Galatians is reminding us of and confronting us of to run back to the slavery of our own rules? Why are we so desperate to hijack the gospel? Well, it's simple. We, like D.B. Cooper, are thieves. Except, unlike D.B. Cooper, we're, we're not necessarily looking for parachutes and cash. Some of y'all might be. If you do, you need to repent. Uh, no, unlike D.B. Cooper, we want glory. We want God's glory, specifically. We have a problem before God. Isaiah, the prophet, tells us about this in chapter 66. We see this in, uh, repeatedly throughout Jeremiah, throughout Isaiah. We have a problem before God, and it's our righteousness. It is the fact that we have a desire to perform for God, to be enough for God to accept us. And you see, we, we might not put self-righteousness uh, uh, as the thing that our church values, that might not end up on the website page of what we believe today, but we certainly have ways of enforcing this in our own life towards our brothers. You see, we want to be right. We want to declare what is right and wrong. We want to be God. Because sin at its very core is us presenting our rules, our stipulations, our additions, our yes ands onto the gospel and saying it's Jesus Christ's work plus mine on top of it at the end. That's why I am glorified. And in doing so, what we have effectively done is we have forgotten one of the core, most essential aspects of the Christian faith, and that is of our spiritual poverty. That we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That our best righteousness is like a filthy rag. That the best possible things that we can do by our own merit the best possible things that we can put forward, that we can achieve, that we can attain to, our laws are the problem. Not our legal laws. Obey the speed limit, please. The moral laws, the things that we put before us to say, this is when I am righteous enough, and this is also when my neighbor is righteous enough. It's this comparison game. You, you know it. I know it. We play this game. All of us do. That this is this is literally as old as Adam and Eve. It maybe I'm a little bit better than that other guy. Maybe I, I give a little bit more. Maybe I do a little bit more. Maybe I am more charitable. Maybe I'm more generous. Maybe I know a little more. And that's what makes me feel better than other people. We play that game. We forget that even if we, through and through, 
could keep every single one of our own standards, every single one of the rules that we grew up in, even if, honestly, you managed to successfully keep God's moral law today, we, we know that we actually have a deeper problem because sin runs so deep you would do it all for the wrong reasons. This is the depth of our sin. This is the thing that the false brothers are denying. This is the thing that we have to remember if we are going to remember how beautiful and life-giving the gospel is. Because if we forget just how deep and ugly our sin is, just how deep our rebellion against God is, we forget just how high the Lord has lifted us in saving us. This is why the message of the false brothers is so hateful and preposterous. If you did every single thing that you wanted to do, every single thing that you possibly believed was right, you would then just be putting yourself in a position where you are declaring what is right and wrong, where you are doing exactly what Adam and Eve have done again and again and again. So why do we have this problem <laughs> in West Texas, especially? I, I, I would say this is, this is a problem throughout all of church history. It's why Galatians was written to Galatia. But I see this problem pretty heavily in West Texas as well. It's something I see in me. I, I, I know the desire to compare. I know the desire to set my righteousness against other people's righteousness. I know the desire to be a performer. And I might suggest that it is because we've forgotten that there are no haves and have-nots in the kingdom of God. There's no Christians and super-Christians. The simple truth of the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners of whom you and I are equally the worst. I joke about this with my students a lot. I, uh, I don't know how many uh, Gen Z year around uh, people who've only ever grown up in the internet, they, they basically think in memes. Uh, if you want to communicate with somebody right now who is between like the, the ages of, uh, let's say, 8 and 25, you, you need to think like a meme. <laughs> I, I know it's kind of perplexing to some people, but it, it genuinely is. And the, the meme version of this theology is, here's the good news you're tied for the second best human of all time. The bad news is uh, you're tied with Hitler and uh, Stalin and Napoleon and Adam <laughs> because there really is only one simple reality that the gospel then leaves open, that there are those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ and then there is everyone else. Christ was good enough and we receive the works, the merit of his accomplishments as the gift of salvation. We receive his righteousness. I think this core profession is said really, really well by Pastor Timothy Keller. The gospel is this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We must not run back to the temptation to add things back in. Rather, we should embrace the fact that our sinfulness, our brokenness, the dirty hands that we have come before the cross with are the very things that the gospel set forth to cleanse. We bring nothing to the Lord but the sin that made it, we bring nothing to our salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Pastor Jonathan Edwards once famously said, we need grace and to recognize the degree to which grace has been offered to us, we have to remember what that grace was offered in the face of. We, we see the early church largely accepting and being founded upon this. This text ends very beautifully. When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The spirit did it all. He says, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And we forget that we are sinners who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we add things back to the gospel, we forget Christ's mercy and grace that was offered to us. John Calvin, famous theologian, says of this, this is why Paul upholds the teaching of the gospel in such a forceful way, seeing such an example and such a picture of man's great weakness and fickleness. Paul states that the truth of the gospel must supersede anything that we may devise. He is showing us that we ought to know the substance of the doctrine which is brought in us in the name of God so that our faith can be fully grounded upon it. Then we will not be tossed about with every wind, nor will we wander about aimlessly, changing our opinions a hundred times a day. We will persist in this doctrine until the end. This, in brief, is what we must remember. Um, let me blew everything up. Let me put it back together for just a moment because this is the good news of the gospel. You are not able to repent enough, to be faithful enough, to be good enough, to be kind enough, to be holy enough before God, but God has given you the gifts of righteousness, of holiness, of goodness, of peace, patience, kindness, self-control. God has laid these things upon you and now you get to repent. You get to walk in faithfulness. You get to walk in joy. This is what Paul sees himself as a living example of. This is why Paul sh shares this story of his life. He's saying, guys, you don't understand. It was grace that brought me this far. It is grace that I am bringing to the uncircumcised. It is grace that will see us through to the end. The good news of the gospel is the free grace of Jesus Christ offered to us in the cross, offered to us 
that we might receive in the faith given to us by the Spirit, that we might receive with hope, with joy, with confidence, and not just receive, but share. Once again, Paul is sharing his salvation not as the end of the story, but as the beginning of it in many ways. Because what he experienced, what grace meant to Paul was that the gospel got to go to people who extra super didn't deserve it, like him and me and you. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for all who believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of radical unity with Christ and humility as a consequence of it. And it is this humility that flavors our witness. It is this humility of recognizing our sinfulness in Christ's greatness that empowers us, that equips us, that sends us. It is this position which we find ourselves in, in which we are able to say, no, 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 Christ's grace will see me through to the very end. It's this sort of belief that leads someone to say, as Paul did later in Romans chapter eight, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Christ's grace has begun salvation, Christ's grace will finish it. If his power is sufficient for us in our weakness and in our lowliness and in the depths of our sin, it's sufficient all the way to the end. This is the good news of the hope of the Christian gospel. Amen? And please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you have looked down upon us. You have looked at us as a, as a parent looks at children with sticky, messy hands, and you have said that you would embrace us, that you would love us, that you would cleanse us, that you would restore us and teach us and discipline us and build us in the, in the light of the work of Jesus Christ. I pray that for everyone here today, we experience the good news of the hope of the gospel that we're able to look at our brokenness and celebrate that you have loved us even in that depth, even in that, that, that murkiness, that we are not able, Lord God, to turn back to the foolish ways that we want to add things back, that we want to hijack the message. Help us, Lord, to repent from the temptation to ever think that we earned this or accomplished this. And help us, Lord Jesus, to celebrate what you have done through and through, what you are doing and what you will see through to the end. We pray this in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. Amen.